Good evening, everyone, and welcome to IIC. It's my great pleasure and honor to chair tonight's event about writing fiction to dramatize inequality. We have three distinguished speakers today, and I'm going to introduce them in the order they will be speaking. Um, so starting from left-hand side, we have um, Professor Nicola Lacey, who is a school professor of law, gender, and social policy at ISE and an associate member of the Int International Inequality Institute. She is an honorary fellow of New College Oxford and of University College Oxford, a fellow of the British Academy and a member of the Board of Trustees of the British Museum. In 2011, she was awarded the Hans Sigrist Prize by the University of Bern for outstanding scholarship on the function of the rule of law in late modern societies. And in 2017, she was awarded a CBE for services to law, justice, and gender politics. Her publications include Women, Crime, and Character, From Morph Lenders to Tess of the Dubvilles, and In Search of Criminal Responsibility. And Sitting next to Professor Lacey is um, Louise Doughty. She is the author of eight novels, most recently Blackwater, which was published in 2016 to critical acclaim in the UK and US, where it was nominated as one of the New York Times Notable Books of the Year. Her previous book was the top 10 bestseller Apple Tree Yard, adapted for BBC One as a four-part series starring Emily Watson, her sixth novel, Whatever You Love, was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award and longlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. She has also won awards for radio drama and short stories, along with publishing one work of nonfiction, a novel in a year, based on her popular newspaper column. She is a critic and a cultural commentator for UK and international newspapers and broadcasts regularly for the BBC. And then last but not least, we have Winnie Lee, who is based in the same department as me. And she's a PhD researcher um, in the Department of Media Communications at LIC. And her research examines the uses of social media by rape survivors to narrate their experience of sexual trauma and how this online engagement can serve as a means of individual recovery and community building. Before coming to LSE, Winnie worked for 15 years in the creative industries in the US, UK, Ireland, Qatar, and Singapore. Her debut novel, Dark Chapter, inspired by her own experience of rape, was published worldwide in 2017. It was listed by Stylist Magazine as one of the 10 smashing debut novels of 2017, and won the Guardian's Not the Booker Prize decided in part by a public vote. It is currently nominated for the prestigious Edgar Awards in the U.S. for Best First Novel. And here is uh, how we're going to organize today's panel. I'm going to invite first Professor Lacey to speak for a few minutes about how she uses literary fiction in social science teaching and research on gender inequality. And then we will have Louise talking about her novel and also give probably a four or five minutes reading from her book. And then Winnie would do the same. And then if by that time 
there's still um, enough time left. I will moderate a short um, discussion among the panelists, or maybe I will just open the floor for question and answer. So, Professor Lacey. Thank you so much for that introduction. And could I just say what an incredible pleasure and privilege it is to be sharing the panel this evening with two such distinguished writers. And um, I'm not going to speak for very long, but I'm going to, because we're in a social science institution, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I see as a social scientist the value, the enormous value of literature for both um, understanding the world and communicating about it or representing important things, particularly about gender inequality and indeed the meaning of gendered violence in the world. Now, I'm um, on, on really, in terms of my actual qualifications, I'm a criminal lawyer and I've very long been interested in the place of women in the criminal justice system, both as, as victims, survivors and offenders. And um, in the, the book that Bincham was very kind to uh, refer to women, crime and character from Mole Flanders to Tessa the Durbervilles. I drew on literary fiction, the, the history of the realist novel in this country, to try to explain why it was that women made up 50% of defendants before the Old Bailey in, roughly speaking, the turn from the 17th to the 18th century, and then had had gone down to a very much smaller proportion where they have indeed stayed by the end, not, in, you know, my end point was Tessa the Durbervilles who is a, a, a really different kind of literary image of what it is to be a female offender, perfectly strong agent but a victim of various kinds of male violence and indeed class violence. Uh, as compared with Daniel Defoe's uh, sexually active, frank, uh, unashamed, and uh, ingenuous, really sort of full of ingenuity and entrepreneurship, more Flanders at the beginning of the 18th century. So I was struck initially by the juxtaposition of these facts that the literary representation of women as, in a sense, able to behave counter-culturally, counter-normatively, and uh, to be uh, represented as, as a, a heroine in a novel was there at the beginning of the 18th century, and we seem to have gone backwards. Nobody, of course, thinks that women being more highly represented in the criminal courts is an index of sexual liberation or equality on gender, on, or progress in gender equality, but it was the fact that the literary representations changed so much that I found striking. And as I worked on that project, I just became more and more interested in the ways in which literature could convey uh, the way in which women's speech and comportment is, uh, is so very, very much controlled in a gender-specific way and in way, the way in which, in particular, in legal contexts, the meaning of women's speech is conditioned by gender, and in particular by gendered context, particularly a sexual context. So I've just finished a, a sort of offshoot of that project in which I followed it through the 20th century. And there I became extremely interested in 
um, in, in the fact of how little had changed in the 20th century. And I just want to really explain how that then, uh, how I've, I've now come to use, in fact, both Winnie's work and Louise's work specifically in my own research and teaching. First of all, in my, my teaching, I have actually uh, allocated to... Um, to my, I, I teach the sexual offences part of the first year criminal law course to, uh, to law students here at LSE. Uh, it's a complicated subject to teach um, because I'm often trying to get across ideas that are uh, really very difficult to convey just with facts or figures, let alone legal rules. And this year I was able to set for my students the trial scene from Winnie's book, Dark Chapter, and I think this is the most extraordinarily powerful evocation of the way in which the meaning of speech is affected by the context in which that speech happens, the body of the speaker, and um, the way in which those the, 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 the sense of that changed meaning and that exquisite perception in a sense, enters the body and the psyche of the, of the speaker herself, so that I think the way you convey your, your extreme sensibility about what you're wearing, how you're standing, how you're looking, this is just something that cannot be conveyed by the social sciences, but it is of tremendous relevance to the social sciences. So this is, is just one example. Then if I'm going to take my second example, of course, from Louise's work, I was... I was very lucky to find Apple Tree Yard when I was working on my 20th century essay because I was, very, I was obviously very interested in why things hadn't changed more for women in the 20th century uh, in the criminal law, but also in just the possibility of being able to be represented as not having always behaved well and being female in the novel. I think it's quite extraordinary. By far... The, the largest example, uh, set of examples I came up with, I mean, I hate to say this because it just sounds like an absolutely gut-churning stereotype. Badly behaved women, let alone criminal women who are hardly there, they're there in the 20th century English novel less than they were in the 19th uh, or certainly 18th centuries. Uh, but where they behave badly, they are almost always operating through some kind of deception, and it's very, very often in some kind of sexual context, whether consensual or non-consensual. And uh, the example that I found most compelling to try and convey the strangeness of this lack of change was to juxtapose the trial scenes in your book, published just, what, four years ago or something like that, um, and uh, a wonderful book by a, a criminologist and playwright called F. Tennyson Jesse called A Pin to See the Peep Show, which was of interest to me because it's about a real murder trial where uh, a woman was tried alongside her, her lover for the murder of her husband. And actually the facts are not so very different from the facts in your uh, book, although the background, very material to your book, of rape is not there. Um, but um, what's quite extraordinary is that although uh, your heroine, Yvonne, is ultimately convicted of perjury, so it's the deception that is the key thing, 
but the sexual context is hugely present to her diminished credibility in court. Um, she's not being constructed as so dangerous as Edith Thompson was her real name, Julia Armand is her name in the novel, who is actually hanged in real life and convicted of murder and hanged in the novel. And I think what that's, that lack of dangerousness of women, perceived dangerousness, is, is an interesting change. But what is equally interesting and equally depressing in a way is how little has changed otherwise in terms of the way in which um, acknowledged sexual activity, as I say, whether consensual or non-consensual, is undermining of credibility for women and changes the meaning of women's speech in a, in a really fundamental way. And I think this is one of the many challenges that these books face, uh, but also one of the real gifts that they give to us as social scientists and as teachers in terms of conveying uh, the meaning of these experiences. So I'd really like to say thank you to both of you. And you're in for a treat. <laughs> Thank you. That was fantastic. That was um, just a, such an efficient precy of all sorts of things that I was thinking for years in the run-up to writing this book and indeed during writing it and since writing it in interviews I've given. Um, I'm going to read from the very beginning of Apple Tree Yard uh, a prologue that looks forward to the courtroom scene. Um, the last third of the book is more or less pure courtroom drama where we see Yvonne on the witness stand um, but I, I gave the reader a taste of that in the prologue. Um, there's a lot of foreshadowing in Apple Tree Yard. The conceit of the book is that Yvonne is telling her story in retrospect. And she also she is telling it to her lover. Um, so part of the book is written in the second person. Uh, she says you a lot and the rest in the first person. Um, I did have a chat with a judge on a prize for unpublished novels recently who said... Louise, bloody apple tree yard. Have you any idea how many entries we get in the second person now? Because you introduced that one. Into the anyway, I'm quite proud I introduced that into contemporary fiction. Um, this also is really just to say a little bit about how the book came to me. Um, this book came to me uh, sort of in one piece, really. It's very rare and pleasing thing when that happens as a novelist. I was actually supposed to be writing a completely different book at the time. And in fact, earlier that day, I'd been at a meeting with my publishers, Faber, and had been discussing the possibility of two books. We were about to do a two-book deal. And I was at home that night, and I was watching the news um, at 10 o'clock and had a chamomile tea, which is normally the stage of the day where I do nothing more intellectual than fall asleep in front of the weather report. And an image came to me of a woman on the witness stand at the Old Bailey. And I didn't know who she was. I didn't know why she was there. I knew that she had been charged with a very serious crime. I didn't even know exactly what. I knew that her co-defendant, the man in the dock, with her was her lover and not her husband. I knew that her husband was in the public gallery watching. And the one thing that I knew for certain about this woman was that she was about to be exposed in a very damaging lie. Um, I knew that she was standing there with the creeping realisation that she was about to be caught out and that the whole of her life was about to be destroyed. And I went upstairs and I wrote the prologue. 
of Apple Tree Yard. It's around 2,000 words, so um, I won't be reading it in its entirety. And the next morning I got up and I emailed it to my agent. I said, you know that meeting we had uh, yesterday? Well, forget it. Um, This is the novel I want to write next. Um, And we sent it to Faber, and luckily they liked it. And they said, oh, can you just do us a... Uh, give us a bit more material about what the rest of the novel is about. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. Um, I had to spend two years and 300 pages to find out. But it is a great gift. I know that some of you in this room are probably working on your own novels, and I can promise you, once you've done it a few times, that can happen, that a novel just presents itself to you, and a character comes to you in a situation, and then you just go with it, and you, you go with the flow of that story. Um, So I'm going to read a little bit of the prologue. Um, What I think I'll do is I'm going to read the very first uh, two or three paragraphs and then I'm going to leap forward uh, to the end of the prologue. Um, And then I'll leave it there because I know Willie's got some reading as well and I'm really, really looking forward to hearing that and we'll have time for a bit of general discussion. The moment builds. It swells and builds. The moment when I realise we have lost... The young barrister, Miss Bonnard, is on her feet in front of me. A small woman, as you probably remember, auburn hair beneath the judicial wig. Her gaze is cool, her voice light. Her black robes look chic rather than sinister. She radiates calm, believability. I've been in the witness box two days now, and I'm tired, really tired. Later, I will understand that Miss Bonnard chose this time of day deliberately. She wasted quite a lot of time earlier in the afternoon asking about my education, my marriage, my hobbies. She has been down so many different avenues that at first I'm not alert to the fact that this new line of questioning has significance. The moment builds, but slowly it swells to its climax. The clock at the back of the court reads 3.50pm. The air is thick. Everyone is tired, including the judge. I like the judge. He takes careful notes, raising his hand politely when he needs a witness to slow down. He blows his nose frequently, which makes him seem vulnerable. And she then goes on to describe the dramatis personae in the court, her lover in the dock, uh, her husband in the public gallery, and everyone through from the police team to the jury. Um, This is a woman who is very, very aware that everybody is staring at her and everybody is judging her and everybody um, has an idea about her credibility. And so the barrister goes on to say, so in total, you've been working in or visiting the borough of Westminster for what, around 12 years, longer? Longer, probably, I say. And the moment starts building, then, there. A profound sense of unease located somewhere inside me, identifiable as a slight clutching of my solar plexus. I diagnose it in myself, even as I am baffled by it. So, she says, and her voice becomes slow, gentle. It would be fair to say that with all that commuting and walking from the tube and lunch hours and so on, that you are very familiar with the area. It is building. My breath begins to deepen. 
I can feel that my chest is rising and falling imperceptibly at first, but the more I try to control myself, the more obvious it becomes. The atmosphere inside the court tightens. Everyone can sense it. The judge is staring at me. Am I imagining it, or has the jury member in the pink shirt on the periphery of my vision sat up a little straighter, leaned forward in his seat? All at once, I dare not look at the jury directly. I dare not look at you, sitting in the dock. I nod, suddenly unable to speak. I know that in a few minutes, I will start to hyperventilate. I know this, even though I have never done it before. The barrister's voice is low and sinuous. You're familiar with the shops, the cafes... Sweat prickles the nape of my neck. My scalp is shrinking. She pauses. She has noted my distress and wants me to know that I have guessed correctly. I know where she is going with this line of questioning, and she knows I know. The small side streets. She pauses again. The back alleyways. And that is the moment... That is the moment when it all comes crashing down, and I know, and you in the dock know too, for you put your head in your hands. We both know we are about to lose everything. Our marriages are over, our careers are finished. I have lost my sons and daughters' good regard, and more than that, our freedom is at stake. Everything we have worked for, everything we have tried to protect, it is all about to tumble. You are familiar, says Miss Bonnard, in her satin, sinuous voice. With a small back alleyway called Apple Tree Yard. I close my eyes, very slowly, as if I'm bringing the shutters down on the whole of my life until this moment. There is not a sound from the court. Then someone from the benches in front of me shuffles their feet... The barrister is pausing for effect. She knows that I will keep my eyes closed for a moment or two. To absorb all this, to attempt to calm my ragged breathing and buy myself a few more seconds, but time has slipped from us like water through our fingers, and there is none of it left. Not one moment. It's over. Hi. Um, first of all, obviously, I want to thank Louise for that kind of incredible reading. Um, I first heard about Louise's book, Apple Tree Yard, when I think it was about 10 months into writing mine. So this probably would have been summer of 2014. And an agent had said, she'd read my prologue, and she said, oh, you know what, it kind of reminds me of this book called Apple Tree Yard, um, which I'd never heard of before. And then I read it, and it actually worked. I mean, your book was such an incredible kind of, I guess, guide in terms of how to structure a book and how to use that um, slow ratcheting of suspense to kind of keep the reader engaged. So as, um, Nikki, as Nicholas said, um, my book also deals with um, kind of women and, and the legal system, but more specifically um, about sexual violence. Um, and there's a slight difference between the trial scene in my book and the one in Louise's. In Louise's, it's actually murder, and there's a rape that's kind of been a backdrop to that murder taking place. And in mine, it's, it is just a, it's a, it's a trial for a rape. And um, the impetus for my book um, obviously just came from my own experience. So in 2008, I was violently assaulted and raped uh, in a in a 
kind of park in the middle of the day on a Saturday afternoon outside of Belfast by a stranger who followed me. And that stranger was a 15-year-old boy um, from the Irish traveler community. And like most victims and survivors of sexual assault, that one experience did pretty much change the course of my life. So I wouldn't have written this book. I wouldn't be here you know, at this talk, or I wouldn't be doing the research I'm currently doing at the LSE as a PhD researcher if that one thing hadn't happened to me in 2008. So I wanted to write a book. I always knew I wanted to write about this topic, and I always sort of knew I wanted to write it as fiction in a way that would kind of intertwine the experience of the survivor uh, and that of the perpetrator because I had a lot of questions in my mind about that 15-year-old boy, um, you know, what had happened in his life that had led him to behaving in that way, um, and had he ever actually thought about the impact of his actions on my life. And so I um, wanted to write that as fiction, and because that was the only way I could actually bring to life his experience and his voice. But at the end of the day, um, the reason for writing this book was also just about doing justice to the survivor's experience, because we often see survivors as, you know, kind of, uh, they're, they're mentioned in news stories, for example, and they're kind of described as existing in that moment when the violence happens, but you never get a sense, generally because their, their identities were not, is, is hidden at the time, um, but you never get a sense of the survivor as being someone who had a past and will have a present, and has a present and will have a future. Her kind of identity and her whole life experience is sort of elided. So so for me, um, it was quite important to show a victim and her life experience like leading up to that crime and then the whole aftermath, including the legal aftermath. And I think Louise's book is also very good in terms of showing a woman who is leading a, a completely respectable life when one thing happens and then another thing happens and then suddenly her life is sort of thrown into disarray because of an act of sexual violence. So I'm going to read from the prologue of this novel, and it's not a trial scene. The trial scene happens much later, but um, it does kind of act as a... It, it is foreshadowing because, you know, it's a novel. you got to hook your readers <laughs> early. But um, it's foreshadowing because it also gives you a sense of that moment about that's about to happen, right? And similarly to Louise's book, there is that sense of a retrospective um, feel to, to what's happening and the way it's being narrated. They say events like this change your life forever, that your life will never be the same as it was the day before it happened, or even two hours before it happened, when I stood waiting for that bus out of Belfast, along the Falls Road to the west of the city. Is it melodramatic to think of life like that, of a clean splick struck straight down the breadth of your existence, severing your first 29 years from all the years that come after? I look across that gap now, an unexpected rift in the contour of my life, and I long to shout across that ravine to the younger me who stands on the opposite edge, oblivious to what lies ahead. She is a distant speck. She seems lost from my perspective, but in her mind, she thinks she knows where she's going. There's a hiking guidebook in her hands and a path that she is following. It will lead here, up the slope, and then along the edge of a plateau to gain the higher ground, merging with the hills above the city. She does not know who follows her. She's only thinking of the path ahead. But some things she cannot anticipate. I stand now on this side of the ravine, desperate to warn my earlier self of the person trailing her, skulking from bush to tree in her wake. Stop, I want to shout. It's not worth it. Just give up the trail and go home. But she wouldn't listen anyway. She's too stubborn, too determined to hike this trail in a day this crisp and clear. And now it's too late. She is in isolated country, and even if she were to turn back, she would inevitably encounter him, because he is behind her, watching her. 
By now, she's traversed the slope and found the trail that runs between a sunlit pasture and the steep incline of the glen. She pauses for a moment, breathing in the beauty of this green track, the tree branches arching over the path, the bright field that stretches to her left. She's escaped the city. This is where the countryside really begins. It seems like a little bit of heaven for one last peaceful moment. But she's perched on the edge, and to her right, the ground plunges sharply into the ravine. The river below was a distant roar. The air up here smells of manure and sun and warm grass, and lazy insects drift in the filtered lights beneath the trees. And then, glancing down the wooded chasm to her right, she sees a figure coming up the slope, trying to hide in the brush of the forest. Something skips unnaturally in the beat of her heart. Only then does she realize she's being followed. Now, years later, it's as if I am the one following my earlier self, haunting her every step like some guardian angel arrived too late. She parts the branches in front of her, and I do it too, invisibly. She quickens her pace to lengthen the distance between them, and I fall in step. She instinctively knows she must reach the open ground before he catches her, so she tries to cover the last few yards of the path uh, before, before he catches her. So she tries to cover the last few yards of the path as it clears a ridge. With an invisible hand, I want to hold back the little bastard, lock him into position like a rugby player, while shouting to her to keep on going, to reach the meadow and then abandon the trail. Forget about the hike. Just head straight to the busy road and go home. But I am powerless to stop it. Events must unfold as they already have. The past is our past, so I am stranded here on this side of the ravine, watching as he catches up to her. I don't want to see the rest of it. I've replayed it enough times already. If I could just freeze it there, in that final moment, perched between the sunlit pasture and the plunging abyss, then everything would still be fine. Only then it would not be my life. It would be someone else's pleasant stroll to the Irish countryside on a spring afternoon. But my journey turned out to be a little different. Okay, I think we are doing quite well on time. So um, if I may, I want to open the discussion with um, a couple of questions first, and then we'll see, we'll open the floor to um, the audience. Um, so linking to the title of this panel and also to, to what Nikki said at the beginning about how literary fiction is very useful for um, conveying knowledge and information that social science could, uh, couldn't you know really um, convey, and I want to ask um, our two novelists about um, the process of doing research for writing this. And I think, especially maybe for Winnie, now that you are doing social science research as a PhD student, <laughs> do you feel like doing research for the novel is in any way you know because you also mentioned that you shadowed uh, a trial um, session? How how is that similar or different with? Doing social science research, and also for Louise, you also mentioned that you know you were, and and could you elaborate a bit on that process? Um, well, I sat through every day of a three-week murder trial at the Old Bailey. Um, I was embedded with the Crown Prosecution Service, and I was sort of undercover. I was dressed in a black trouser suit, and people kept saying "counsel, counsel," and passing yes. me notes, which <laughs> I have to say was incredibly exciting. Um, <laughs> And um, the, the judge knew, knew I was a novelist and gradually other people in the courtroom got to know, um, particularly uh, because the, the murder squad was sort of charged with looking after me in the breaks and making sure I didn't run amok through the building and go anywhere I wasn't supposed to go. 
Um, when I initially went um, there, I thought I was just going for authentic detail, for things like the hum of the air conditioning, what the lights were like, uh, procedure, which of course is incredibly important to get right in any trial scene because there are so, much, so many courtroom dramas on television in books that people are actually quite familiar with the tropes of a courtroom drama. But actually, the more I sat through the trial, the more I found it gave me so many ideas for plot development. I was about halfway through the book at that point, and it really took the book in a different direction. And in particular, it was exactly what you were talking about, which is the way in which women's reliability is judged and the way in which women's morality is seen through the prism of their sexual morality. Um, and particularly with the system we have in this country, the system of adversarial justice, where discrediting a witness is an incredibly important part of the barrister's tools, uh, the, the toolbox they're using. And obviously the ways in which women get discredited are different from the ways in which men get discredited. So that fed into the novel in so many... I mean, it was, it was an invaluable experience, really. It, it, it helped make the book what it was. Mm. Um, yeah, similarly to Louise, I, I didn't shadow with I shadowed the barrister at um, Blackfriars Crown Court and then also in Belfast because the legal the, le the trial that takes place in the novel takes place in, in Belfast um, and I um, I kind of felt it was necessary to kind of sit through those trials and for me I guess the research was was slightly different in that um, so much of the book was drawn from my own experience but in real life actually I, I didn't have to sit through a trial because I was very lucky and my perpetrator pleaded guilty at, at like the very last minute so I flew over to Belfast uh, you know thinking I was going to have to testify and I, I can't describe in you know in a few minutes I can describe it in the book in terms of just how how traumatizing that is as a victim of rape to then have to sit through about 11 months thinking that you're going to have to testify in great detail about your rape in public in front of your perpetrator but I so I went through 11 months dreading that um, flew over to Belfast for the trial, and then I was sitting in the courthouse um, in, in the witness room waiting for the jury to be selected when I, the barristers kind of swooshed in in their robes and they said, oh, there's been a change um, in development. Yeah, there's been a development, and if you'll agree to reduce the counts that he's charged with, he will agree to plead guilty. And I remember thinking, like, what does that mean, right? Because I was incredibly, like, anxious at the moment, and I'm like, oh, no, okay, so that, that actually means in that legal way that they were speaking, that means that you know, the trial isn't going to happen because if he's pleading guilty, then I don't have to testify. And I'm like, yeah, sure, right? But um, it was this kind of sudden flip in terms of what I was expecting, like dreading this testimony and then suddenly being told I don't have to do that. Um, so I was relieved I didn't have to. Um, but I was always thinking, like, well, what would that trial have been like, right? Um, and so I realized when it came to writing a novel, because it's fiction and, you know, we can take more narrative license, you know, as audiences, we expect there to be a trial. We, we're so used to seeing TV shows, and, you know, and, and movies where kind of that trial is like the, that's the moment where truth happened, where truth comes out and justice is achieved. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I don't want to deny, um, you know, my readers a chance to see this really gripping scene. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to write a trial scene. So that's when I decided to... Um, to shadow uh, that barrister, and I just realized that um, it, it's an awful experience for the for the survivor um, because I shadowed three different. Um, I sat through three different cases at um, Blackfriars Crown Court, and every single one of those 
um, uh, accused uh, uh, criminals actually was acquitted. So I was just thinking, okay, well, I mean, obviously the CPS, the, crime pres- the Criminal Prosecution Service, isn't going to try to move forward on a case that they don't think actually happened. So in all these cases, probably the rape did happen, and yet the victim has to sit through all of that, 11 months of dread, the testimony, which is very demeaning, and then find out at the end that she doesn't get justice anyway. So I was like, okay, that's ridiculous, and I need to dramatize that. So that's one reason why I kind of felt like I needed to show the trial scene. But in terms of doing the research, it's a totally different process in some ways, because you could say that's kind of ethnography, right, sitting and observing. But in terms of how I was going to mine that for the output, I suppose, if you're going to use social science terms, um, it was how do I lean into kind of the emotions of that experience, right? So rather than kind of quantifying all this kind of stuff, it was going to be about like, well, what, it, what, it, what would it have felt like as the victim to be sitting through that? And how can I capture all those emotions and put it in a, in a novel? And the other thing is trials are actually quite boring to sit through sometimes. There's like a lot of paper pushing. There's a lot, you know, and so you have to kind of edit out that boring stuff and keep in the really tense moments. So um, yeah, so I guess that's kind of some of the research I did in terms of the legal side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Nikki, do you want to make, just make comment? a comment about, about truth? Because it brings out another way in which I think this, this sort of literary writing really raises questions for the social sciences and certainly for my discipline, which is law. So in your plot, Louise, um, Yvonne has genuinely told a lie, although it's a lie that is quite immaterial to her guilt of what she's charged with. And, of course, she she wouldn't have told that lie had our sexual culture been somewhat different. But I think one of the really crucial things about this sexualization of women's credibility, or rather, it's the other way around, isn't it? It's decredibilization of women through sexuality, is that um, it then radiates into testimony more generally and into the credibility of women more generally, so that... Anybody, and, and here the boringness and length of trials is material, there's almost nobody who's ever given testimony that is entirely and completely accurate mm-hmm. because memory is faulty, concentration slips, and so on. But the meaning of small slips, as we know, is one of the major problem barriers to proof, as the law calls it, in, in, the, in not just, but, but particularly in rape and other sexual offence trials. And so this understanding of the complexity and the, you know, the, the, the deeper meaning of this communication that comes out of your books, I think, is hugely important to a proper understanding of, of, of the limits to those rather sort of hard-edged, simplistic notions of truth with which the legal system operates. Okay, um, we can now open the floor for um, discussion, and there are roaming mics. Please wait until um, the mic arrives, and please ask a concise question instead of making another <laughs> speech. Um, say your name and, 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 and who you are, and, and then ask a brief question. I'm going to take questions in clusters, so just so you know, I'm conscious of time. And I'm we can take the first cluster of two to three questions and then. I mean, I'm so very shy. Yeah, they will give me a good There's one at the back. Yeah, I think. <laughs> um, the gentleman at the very back. Yeah. 
thank you very much, everyone. Um, it was a question for Winnie. I just wondered, um, to what extent do you think your research, the theoretical part of your research, informed your creative practice? Um, you, can you hear me? No, could you say All right. again? To what... I just wondered, to what extent the theory behind your research informed your creative practice? Do you think it had any effect on the way you wrote the book? Uh, you mean, like, as a social science researcher? To what extent theory? Yeah, the theoretical part of your PhD. Okay, cool. Um, and there are other questions? Yeah, I think, was there another one over here? Um, yes, um, the lady wearing the red scarf. Thank you. Um, I think my question, you talk a lot about um, the fact that women are always discredited within sexual, sexual contexts and through, um, I think the word was um, deceit. And I'm not sure if I entirely understand what you mean by that and if you could provide some examples in terms of how maybe men, on the other hand, aren't with some more concrete examples. That's okay. Is there another question, or should we just start with these two? Hi. Just a quick question. If you, um, do you think the over-dramatization of many uh, uh, rape scenes in public, uh, in, in many other fictional uh, characters other than yours, which I thought was, uh, was a nice change, um, hinders the change in, in inequality and, and progress for understanding of, of rape, uh, crime, and the, and the impact on the victims. I just ask you to repeat the very first bit of your question. I just didn't hear it. Yeah, I thought that um, the, uh, the novels we had here were very accurate and real-life versions of rape victims and the, uh, and, and the impact on their lives. Very often, the over-dramatization of it um, is... is is the more typical way they're, they're shown in, uh, in fiction. And I wondered if that hinders um, understanding in society and uh, hinders um, a change in inequality. Yeah, I'll start with that first question, which is just, uh, I mean, I can speak to any of them, but the first one, um, so I actually, I finished the novel before I started my PhD research. It's just, it takes like years for a novel to get published. Um, so in some ways, I, I, yeah, absolutely probably know um, the research I was doing theoretically mm -hmm. that I'm doing now as a PhD um, student is very, I, I learned that after I wrote the novel. Um, I would say there are some theories specifically about narratives around sexual violence which um, affect, you know, affect the activism I do around this issue and that is very much that um, you know, several theorists say that in order to, to recover, a very important key to recovery is being able to tell your story um, on your own terms and to be listened to and to be believed and that kind of acknowledgement of your testimony is, is important and I think that can maybe relate back to why the court system is, is a very imperfect way because you're, as a woman, as, as a victim um, of crime, of that kind of crime, if you're giving a testimony, it's never on your own terms. You're only, you're only ever able to answer questions that are being asked you and then what you're, the words are kind of twisted against you. So I think the legal system is, has a lot of problems in terms of the way that it is not able to serve justice to, to victims. Um, but in terms of my own creative process, it's pretty separate from that theory, I guess. 
Maybe I could take the last one, as, as Apple Triad was televised, um, mm. so it's particularly relevant for that, um, which is um, absolutely, I think, um, the way that sexual assault has been used historically in drama, and it has to be said in a lot of news reporting, is as a kind of sort of sexy hook <laughs> rather than an act that has consequences. Yeah. And I think at yeah. its most offensive level we have a trope which um, other people have called disposable women, where a drama begins with a murdered woman, often sexually assaulted, murdered. Usually, um, maybe there's a few shots of her running through a forest in a negligee, and she's always young and beautiful, because it's only young and beautiful women who get sexually assaulted and murdered. Mm. Um, because The implication always being that somehow they have brought it on themselves by their youth and the beauty and the negligee and the running through the forest. They are dead... And the story is then a battle between two men, a serial killer and a male detective. And the whole narrative is about these two men and their bad marriages and the wives who don't misunderstand <laughs> understand them and ever. But the dead woman at the beginning is never more than a thing. Mm, yeah. Now, that is something, for God's sake, that uh, we have been raised with and we're sick of it. Um, and... I can understand how a lot of people find um, books like Winnie's or mine difficult read. They're hard read. That you know, it's taking you realistically, I think, to a place where a lot of people understandably don't want to go. But I do feel very passionately that what we have both done is put the woman's experience at the centre of the story, and we've shown the consequences, and we've shown what happens afterwards and before, and that this is a real person to whom a thing has happened. So, um, yes, I think the way it's often presented is very, very problematic and counter-suggestive. So yeah, Should I take the question. second yeah. question? It's a good question, and I can't answer it fully, give you all the, the evidence I could adduce for it, but I think, in a way, Louise has just given you a good answer, which is that it's, it's more frequent to find, if I can put it this way, literary representations of men who are either criminal, have committed crimes or in otherwise being behaved in sort of counter-normative behaviour, counter-cultural behaviour, who haven't done so through deception. It's just for sort of what they've done. They've committed offences of violence or even theft is slightly different from deception. So I think Moll Flanders is a good example. She's a thief, so she's not exactly honest. Um, but she doesn't have to go through great subterfuges in order to as it were, assert her, her deviance. And I think that it's just very hard to imagine female deviance that doesn't in some way mm -hmm. disguise itself. Yeah. And um, it's not that being shown to have lied doesn't reduce men's credibility in either the courts or the novel. Of course it does. It's that the association is much stronger for women. I think Edith Thompson as well is yeah. a classic example. I mean, if, yeah. you, you, you might be more, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, yeah. but no. Edith Thompson was actually nowhere near when her lover, Percy, yes. stabbed yeah. her husband. Yeah. Mm. But she was hung for murder yeah. because the very fact that she was an adulteress, she'd had an affair with a much younger man, it was presented in court that she must have urged him to do it and letters yeah. were read yeah. out between them. She was actually, it was him who went and stabbed the husband. She wasn't, she wasn't even within metres, but she was hung for murder. It's hard to imagine that happening the other way around. 
And just to kind of add to that conversation, I mean, a lot, a lot of these kinds of problematic tropes of women, either kind of the seductress femme fatale woman or the, the disposable woman who doesn't really ever have a voice or a name, practically, um, I mean, those are often show up in kind of male-authored narratives, right, mm-hmm. of, of crime and society and women, right? So, uh, you know, Louise and I obviously are not men, and so we're kind of writing, we're writing in a way that puts the survivor at the, at the center of the narrative, and that kind of you know, completely shifts the framework by which we look at these things. So, um, you know, if, just going back to the second or the, the last question, which was about, you know, problematic representations. Um, I mean, if you look, even look at news stories, like what, what does the news like reporting when they're reporting rape? Okay, so they, they, anything involving a celebrity, which is all kind of hashtag me too, right? Um, anything involving, you know, child sex rings, like Rotherham, um, and then the, stra- the very violent stranger rape, right? So my own rape took place in 2008, and it was a stranger rape, and it was violent. I had 39 separate injuries, and that was all over the news, right? And in reality, 9 out of 10 victims are actually attacked by somebody that they know, but the disproportionate amount of rapes that are actually reported in the news are stranger rapes. So that's one very glaring example of the reality of these crimes not being reflected accurately in the stories that the news decides mm-hmm. to report. Mm-hmm. And then also filters into kind of crime fiction, as we already spoke, and so all these other sorts of tropes that you often see in, in fictional narratives. Um, don't get me started on the false rape allegation, which is <laughs> yeah, also all over. Time. Yeah, but again, that's that's a really inaccurate tr- uh, you know, representation of you know only 2% of reports rapes are false allegations and yet how many times do we see that being seen do we see that being portrayed in the movies and also kind of hinted at in news reports as well okay we could take another round of questions um oh i think i should um no, this side there are two questions yeah. on this side yes Hi, um, thank you so much. You're so interesting. Um, My name is Eloise. I'm a student at the Department of Gender Studies. Um, I have a question, I think, mainly for Louise and Winnie. When you're writing um, fiction or otherwise telling stories, how do you deal with questions of accountability, speaking for others or for yourself or retreat? Um, How does that play into representing certain people, wider narratives, um, and, and where do you fall on that? Thank you. I think there's another question. Um, My question is to the entire panel, but it's about how we, the, I think we've seen a recent spike of portraying or the representation of the perpetrator of the crime. And in giving a voice to the perpetrator of the crime, does it, it, it might seem binary at this point, but does it somehow take away or promote some feeling of injustice uh, to the, to the victim? And to the survivor, and does that, you know, does that, however, um, engender some form of understanding or trying to find out the root cause behind some sort of this anti-normative behavior, or, or you know, is it, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing, basically? Was there another? Yes, the lady sitting on the third row. Thank you. Um, how can you strike the right balance between the creative element of storytelling and the research? In other words, can the research ever curb the creative element? And if so, how can one avoid it? Uh, I'm going to start with the second question. These are all really good. <laughs> um, and we are running out of time. So, um, yeah, in terms of um, inviting the perpetrator's voice in there, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, with my book, like I said, the perpetrator's voice is interwoven, but I'm coming up with the perpetrator's voice. So that is me as the victim imagining what his experience would have been like. Um, and in, in that sense, that's still kind of a survivor-authored narrative of the survivor's voice. Um, you might be thinking, are you referring to the TED Talk and Sath of Forgiveness, that whole thing? 
something. Okay, just think about a year ago where a, and there's a TED talk that you can look for online where a survivor and her, her rapist gave a talk on stage, right? And I get asked that question every single time, right? And again, that was a, a survivor authored um, narrative right there. So she, she you know, was um, date raped by her, her, um, her boyfriend at the time as a teenager and then went through years of recovery and now works as an activist on that issue. And then she decided to get back in touch with him. Um, and then they kind of had this dialogue and they decided to do a TED Talk together and write a book together, which is a bit weird and jarring for, I think, most people to try to conceive of. I wouldn't want to do that because I have no interest in actually speaking to my real-life um, perpetrator. But I think if the survivor invites in that that voice and shows a willingness to try to understand that, then that is a way for society to understand that we actually do need to listen to perpetrators' voices, not to, so they can justify their behavior, because you can't justify that, but just so we can try to understand the roots of that behavior. So I um, still find it strange to think a 15-year-old boy did this thing to me, which has now changed the course of my life, and yet that's a fact, right? And the fact is he did do that, and for some reason he felt compelled to behave in that way. Um, so lots of perpetrators have similar experiences where they maybe feel like they can, they can justify their behavior or there's different um, factors, societal factors that lead to that kind of behavior. And I think we do need to look at that if we're ever going to try to stop these kinds of crimes from happening in the first place. But I think we do need to put the, we do need to prioritize survivors' experiences. But if a survivor is willing to kind of invite that voice in, then there is a validity to that. That was so articulate, and I've gone on a train of thought. I've completely forgotten the word. <laughs> I know there was one of them I really wanted to answer. Representation, yeah. Oh, representation, yeah. Um, I think it's, well, it's such an interesting and complicated question, and um, particularly around fiction, because as a novelist, it's, you are literally representing other people all the time in every single thing you write because your job as a fiction writer is to make stuff up. Um, I think there are certain areas where every responsible novelist proceeds with great care. Um, and I would always proceed with great, the greatest of care when I was writing about any life that was radically different from my own in any other way. Um, and I don't think there's anything controversial about that. A lot of novelists get very um, arsy uh, if you challenge them to say, do you really have a right to write about this story, particularly in terms of race and ethnicity? And they go, oh, you're censoring what I do and all this sort of thing. And I, I get really impatient with my fellow writers when I do that. And I think, no, nobody's censoring you. We're just asking you to do your job properly and to do due diligence. So everybody understands that if you're writing a story from the point of view of a neurosurgeon, you talk to neurosurgeons, you maybe get your neurosurgeons to read your book, you try and really get inside of what it's like to be a neurosurgeon. And you simply apply that across the board when you're writing about somebody different from yourself. Um, I do think that writers, in a way, have a duty to look beyond their own lives, particularly if you think that historically most writing has been done by white men and what we end up with is the white male experience. And I think we want to keep expanding that. But just we all have to do our jobs properly. Nikki, final comments on representation and voice from the well, social well, science perspective? I should just take this question of the relationship between the, the, the as it were, the, the social science, the facts and the and the creativity, and I, obviously I'm not a fiction writer, but I've written a biography, and this is a genre that also raises this question in sort of the opposite, but yeah, in a similar way. So obviously you're, you're constrained by an understanding of, you know, you can't, you can't just make stuff up. 
But on the other hand, you have to acknowledge and take responsibility for the fact that your interpretation is adding meaning to the world. You know, it, it's not just a representation in biography um, any more than it is in literature. And so I think, like Louise, I would answer it in terms of a very great deal of responsibility and need for re- refle- reflexivity <coughs> and very careful reflection about how you're doing it. Well, unfortunately, we only got one hour for today's panel. Before I ask you to join me to thank the panelists, I just want to remind everyone that the novels that you've just heard about are on sale outside. And Luis and Winnie have agreed to sign the books. And now please join me to thank our wonderful panelists. (laughs) 